Welcome to the slightly delayed Tolkien class number 7. Before I begin the recording, I have a quick announcement. I mentioned before that I will be speaking at the Festival in the Shire in Wales this August. Well, the Festival in the Shire organizers, led by the great inkling specialist Colin Duriez, are putting together an online journal with a wider range of Tolkien-related features and interviews. They just released the second issue of the journal today. It contains interviews with several major Tolkien artists, John Howe, Ted Naismith, Rodney Matthews, and Michael Haig, as well as an interview I did with the great scholar Tom Shippey. There are also feature articles by artist Jeff Murray, Peter Collier of TolkienLibrary.com, Ian Collier of the Tolkien Society, and an account by Clyde S. Kilby of his work with Tolkien on the Silmarillion. The journal has also asked me to be a regular contributor, and in this issue they've published a brief essay I wrote expanding on part of my intro lecture from the podcast. You can find the journal at www.festivalintheshire.com journal. I encourage you to check it out. Anyway, on to the class session. In this class, I start with a few concluding remarks about Leaf by Niggle, and then I move on to the first half of Smith of Wooten Major. Okay, um, I, I just want to make a few kind of concluding remarks. We started making some conclusions about Niggle last time, and I want to just kind of sum up and also go back and say some things that I regret not saying last time. First, remember we were talking about first... But the, in, in looking at the significance and role of art as it's depicted in this story, one thing that we can see is, although very clearly, as we said last time, uh, one of the functions of art is to give an introduction to the mountains, to give a glimpse to that country, ultimately to paradise itself. Um, and as the voices say, uh, Niggles Parish becomes one of the, you know, for many it is the greatest introduction to the mountains. But what I was trying to emphasize at the very end, before we left, was that Tolkien doesn't say that that's the only function of art. That is, it is not only a vehicle. It is not just a window that you look through. It has value in itself. The tree is really there, and it really stays, and it becomes itself not only a window, not only a vehicle, but itself a consolation. It's good for recuperation. Uh, uh, So... Once you see the mountains, once you get to the mountains, the tree doesn't disappear and its value doesn't go away. And that's sort of what I was trying to emphasize there. But also, Nigel finds that his picture really existed when he gets to to Nigel's country or Nigel's parish. Uh, That in this one sense, he was not just while he was painting, conceiving of an image of a real thing. And we talked about this last time, how it kind of goes both ways, how both when he was painting, there is a sense that something really did exist that he had an image of in his head and that he was trying to convey through his painting. But also, at the same time, the story seems to emphasize that his painting and the choices that the artistic choices that he made are what are determining and making the tree itself. So it goes in both directions. And here, the thing that I regret not talking about last time was Plato. I mentioned Plato and then dropped it, and I, I, I can't uh, in good conscience. My conscience has been smiting me for the last few days about doing that um, because I think it's a good illustration of what Tolkien is doing and what, and what he's doing differently here. Uh, to, to do a very brief and, 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 and bowdlerized version of, of Plato, uh, Basically, Plato says that, there, that the things which really are exist in the intelligible world. That true things, real things, are the things that can only be attained by the intellect. And he has this the famous allegory of the cave that he uses to illustrate this. The real world, the world that we interact with, is a shadow, a reflection, an image of that real world. And it's lesser because it's physical and it's corruptible. And what lies behind all of the things that we see around us 
are the true things, the great things, the deeper things. Art, Tolkien, Plato didn't think much of art at all. Um, to him, someone who does a painting of a tree is making an image of an image of the true things. It is two steps removed from that true thing. And so if we are to look past real trees to the, to the, the, the intelligible form behind them, uh, so much the more so should we not pay attention to paintings. Better real trees than paintings. Um, better a shadow than a shadow of a shadow or an image than an image of an image. Clearly, in Leaf by Niggle, Tolkien is suggesting that's not how things work. That Niggle's tree, Niggle's painting, is not the image of an image of a real thing. Niggle's imaginary tree, the tree that he, the, the, the little world that he subcreates on his canvas actually exists. At the very least, you could say, is something which, especially later in the Renaissance, people began to say in responding to Plato and think about, thinking about Plato's terms and the relationship between art and nature that it suggested. They said, well, you know, isn't sometimes the work of an, art, of, of an artist a direct image not of a real thing, but of an intelligible thing? That is, just as a real tree is a shadow of that, that form, that concept that lies behind it, might not the artist be going directly to that concept and trying to represent it in painting so that perhaps the painting and the real thing stand on equal relationships, though different, uh, to, to the real thing? Uh, Nigel seems to be suggesting something like that. But I would say that Tolkien is suggesting a step even more, a step even further. That is, he's talking about the cause Right? that Niggle is not just a representer. He's a maker. The leaves on the tree are not just the leaves that he saw. They're the leaves that he imagined. They're the leaves that he subcreated. His art, his imagination is the source of them. And that goes a step even further uh, than that kind of middle ground or, or critique of, of Plato. Niggle gave substance to this tree. And when at the end, remember, Paris looks around and says, did you make all of this, Nigel? And the answer is yes and no, right? Yes, he did. Yes, he was the artist. Yes, he was the maker. They actually came out of his head. Of course, we know that they came out in part, in some sense, in collaboration with Parrish. But also, more importantly, Nigel recognizes, indeed, the first thing he recognizes when confronted with the tree is that it's a gift, Right? It is from him, but it's not from him. Um, but, but he was a maker. Both things work together. They're not just in contradiction. Nigel made it, but yet it was a gift given to him. It was a gift given to him. And his making, his imagination, was the instrument through which it was given. Do you see? Um, and this is one of the things that I think is so important about what Tolkien insists upon here. And it goes back to what he was saying at the very, very end of On Fairy Stories, the, the, the role that an artist can have within creation, that, that it really matters. I mean, it gets back to the, the larger work of the creator, of the great artist, and how Niggle's own art and how human art relates to that. God has appeared to integrate Niggle's art into the expression of God's own designs. Remember, Nigel's in treatment. This is treatment. The tree is finished, but it's not finished with, because Nigel isn't finished. And apparently, God isn't finished with him yet. He still needs to be 
cleaned up, and this is part of the process. The tree, in that sense, is God's instrument, inasmuch as he is the one who has arranged the whole affair, you know, the whole afterlife business, right? Um, it's part of a larger picture. Remember those experiences that Nigel has about how some of the things he kind of glimpsed but didn't really incorporate? Some of them he didn't know anything about at all. There's that spring that waters the whole region. And he had a vague kind of idea that there was probably a spring, but he had never drawn it and he had never really thought of it. And now not only does he see that it's there, but that's when he sees, oh, actually, wow, I see that was really the, the important thing. It's that spring which gives life to the whole region, right? So he learns new things about, about, about his world. Again, his glimpse was only a glimpse, and it was only a partial glimpse of this big picture. But his glimpse, his imagination, is the instrument that God used to bring about this thing that he, God, created through Nigel's making. Um, There is a kind of paradox there. And that paradox goes beyond just human art. Uh, That is, all human actions are like this. Humans have free will and choose to do things, and their choices have real consequences. But yet, the whole picture works out to be as God wanted the picture made. Remember when Nigel and Parrish are having their last conversation before Nigel goes up into the mountains? And Parrish is regretting the choices that he made during his life, right? And he looks back and he says, it's when he realizes this is your painting, and he says, I'm sorry, I never... I never, you know, paid attention to it. And Nigel says, oh, that's okay. I was pretty bad to you too, right? But then he utters the sentence which I believe, for my money, to be the most theologically and philosophically profound statement Tolkien makes in all of his fiction. Nigel turns to Parrish and says, it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Human choices have consequences. Had we done things differently, they would have been different. But they couldn't have been better. In the end, there's nothing actually to regret. Because everything that happens, whether good or bad, is used as God's instrument for making the picture that he wants to make. We will see further uh, contemplations of this idea, especially in the Silmarillion. Watch out for this, uh, especially on, uh, on the first reading from the Silmarillion, the Aino Lindale that we'll discuss on Friday, uh, which is Tolkien's creation myth. Um, it has a very prominent moment there. Uh, and we'll see this working out. But there is this kind of thinking, this kind of paradoxical thinking, is really at the core of Tolkien's whole world. And we'll see these kinds of paradoxes all the time. One of the things that I find most striking about Tolkien's thought, about Tolkien's fiction, are that it's tempting to use the word balance, right? that he balances two different things like good and evil. I'm not sure that I would quite use that word because it seems to me not... See, balance implies like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You know, like 50% of this and 50% of that. But it's not like 50-50. It's more like 100% and 100%. uh, That he insists upon two apparently contradictory things. Like, for instance, human actions really matter and have real consequences. And human free will actually affects things on the one hand. And 
God is always going to do what God has chosen to do. And it's always going to turn out exactly as God wants it in the end. And that God will take whatever choices are made and make it into the picture that he wants it to be. That everything is determined, in other words, at the same time. Now, that's a traditional paradox. The Bible insists upon that paradox between predestination and free will. And it is a traditional idea adhered to through much of the Middle Ages. Most of the Middle Ages, going back to my boy Boethius and the Consolation of Philosophy, one of my favorite books ever. Um, and Boethius explains this, how, yes, human will, the human will is free. And yes, of course, everything is determined by God. Uh, there is no problem here other than, well, our heads are the problem here in several ways, as he explains. Now, I did Plato. I don't have time to do all of Boethius as well. But again, the, the point is that's just one illustration of this kind of paradoxical thinking just as you can see the same kind of paradoxical thinking in the relationship between Nigel and his art. Is it a gift? Is it something that he was just enabled to do? Or is it his? Is it really from him? Yes, both. Both at the same time. Oh, I don't think there's anything more to say about that. <laughs> I, just wanna, I just wanted to flag this general tr- trend, this general tendency, because it's something, it's something that... I think we'll be able to see coming up again and again. Perilous question perhaps to ask right now when I'm hoping to move on to Smith, but any questions? Everyone feeling a deep, complete satisfaction with our discussion of Nigel? No questions left to be asked? No frontiers left to be explored? Yeah, yeah, that's what I figured. Good. I feel the same way. All right. (laughs) On... To Smith of Wooten Major. Um, Smith of Wooten Major was written later in his life. In fact, uh, it is chronologically, uh, in Tolkien's life, the latest of his works that we will read all semester. He wrote it uh, in the mid-60s, uh, in 1965, when he was 73 years old. Um, it begins, for him, it, he, he first conceived of this story uh, as an invitation. Remember the... the the bits in uh, the, the description of Nigel's painting where he talks about, you know, it's sort of a, a, the tree throwing out unexpected branches and something coming in and having to be attended to. That was exactly sort of how Smith of Wooten Major uh, came about. He, he was asked to write a preface to a new edition of The Golden Key by George MacDonald, um, and which he didn't really like all that much. Uh, but anyway, but he agreed to do it. And so in the, con- in the course of writing this preface, he felt, okay, I really need to define what fairy is. And so he was going to illustrate, uh, for the sake of his readers, which uh, he, the, the edition of MacDonald's book was, was intended, was, was going to be aimed at children, so he was thinking of children uh, in, his, uh, in his illustration and in, his, um, uh, in the preface he was writing. Um, so he said, okay, I have to think of some way to illustrate what, fa- what, what the land of fairy is and what it's really about. So he started like in, like, on a side in his preface to tell this story about the great cake and the star, uh, and then it ended up just taking, he never finished the preface, and he <laughs> instead went on uh, to write this story. This story was a very large, unexpected branch that, that the tree he was working on sort of threw out at that point. Um, what do we see in this story? about the interactions between humans and fairy. Give me some, some observations, some, 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 some things that we should notice. This story is the first one, which is a genuine, in Tolkien's definition, this is a genuine fairy story. 
right? Nigel was, I mean, it's a story, and it works very well as a story, but it's also, in some sense, a theoretical work. That is, he's sort of working out through that story many of the theoretical ideas that he'd been working with before. This is more of a pure fairy story, right? Tony, go ahead. Well, sort of contrary to what he said about one fairy story, and one fairy story is that it's not really any rare coincidence that uh, that Smith enters fairy. He, he's a regular visitor, and, and he knows how to get there. He knows he, he's traveling around fairyland, trying to basically explore all of fairyland. Good, and I agree. I think that's an important an important theme in the book, right? That is Smith's own attitude towards fairy. Uh, and his relationship with it, and it does change off and on. Um, I agree. He seems uh, comfortable. He just goes there, you know, to hang out every now and again. And not just to hang out, what does he do there? He explores. And he's, he's trying to find stuff. Like, for instance, what, what kinds of things is, is he looking for in his explorations of fairyland? There's the king's tree. Good. He comes across the king's tree at one point, and, and he often goes to try to find it again, and he never finds it again. But he wants to find again that, that, that place where the king's tree was. It was amazing. What else? He's looking for the queen and the king. Yeah, he does. Well, not like actively, but he wanted to eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, would, he would like to meet the king and the queen. Um, you're right. It's not like a personal quest. It's not like he goes around saying, uh, you know, Hi, could you direct me to the queen? But, um, but it's clearly a desire that he has. Good, what else? Jordan? He tries to pass through the outer fairy um, areas into new fairy. Yes. Which is where he encounters the queen. Yeah, good, good. I mean, it's, there, there is this, I was about to say queer sense, uh, but, but it's not at all queer. Of course, this sort of, un, this, Cloudy sense of inner and outer fairy. You're not sure. Ex- you know, so inner fairy uh, is more marvelous and more breathtaking. You know, it's as much more than outer fairy as outer fairy is from our world, right? So, I mean, there's this, there's this very definite sense of moving sort of into another level. Um, but where the boundary is, but the way in which it's not definite, the way in which it's not certain is where the boundary is and exactly sort of what's going on there or what's at stake there. And I think that that's... <coughs> That's an interesting element to it. Again, we, we talked a while before when we were talking about on fairy stories about the nature of fairy and the, how it, you know, its boundaries are not, are not clear boundaries. And that, that same thing th- seems to be true here. Aaron? He's sightseeing and he sees a lot of wonderful things, but he also acknowledges that there's um, unpleasant fairies that he meets and uh, there's... Like I was confused, but the mariners seem to be a bad thing that he sees that he acknowledges that like, the world is very... Good, yeah. The, the world of fairy is dangerous. I mean, notice one of the things we're told at the beginning, uh, that is at the beginning of his, uh, of his journey there, on page 24, near the end of that first full paragraph, he was as safe as a mortal can be in that perilous country. The lesser evils avoided the star, and from the greater evils he was guarded. Now, we never meet, so far as we know, either the lesser or the greater evils, but we're told at the beginning that they're there. Right, so it is certainly not true that fairy is, you know, this perfect, idyllic, paradisical. It's paradisical in some senses, but it's certainly not. It's not safe by any means, and it's not even all good. Uh, 
as we might say. Yeah, Elise? Um, yeah, he finally, it's that one time when he gets in, he sort of is climbing the mountains. He turns, after the experience with the, uh, the elven warriors on the shore, which is very scary, he, he stops trying to find the borders and instead says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explore inland. Right? He becomes convinced that it's an island and I, I'm going to try to get in towards the center. Throughout, I mean, he has again and again this desire for his desire for exploration is also one of, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to penetrate to the inner parts of fairy. I'm going to, it's this desire to, not exactly to conquer. It's not like he, you know, is under any impression that he's ruling the place. But there is a kind of entitlement, perhaps, in his search. You know, that he is going to, he's going to find the mysteries of fairy. He is not in general, just like I'm going to wander around and appreciate what I see and take whatever comes to me. There are things that he's looking for. He wants to uncover as much as he can. And it's, it's not clear uh, that that's a good thing, that that's a good impulse on his part. He's, he's welcome there because of the star on his breath. What else, Jordan? It actually explicitly goes into his presumption that he's... Um... When he meets the um, the elves dancing, one of them says, "Well, why are you here? You're not allowed to be here. You have to clean permission." He was abashed, for he became aware of his own thoughts and knew that he read it. That the style on his forehead was a passport to go wherever he wished, and now he knew that it was not. Yeah. Presuming this, had this sort of arrogance. Well, I've got a special style that makes me important. Yeah, and it does make him important, but not in quite the way that he that he thought. And that's, I think, a really a really interesting moment. On the one hand, he has been chosen. He is special. He has been, he has been given this star. And the star gives him a passport in to ferry. and enables him, apparently, to cross the borders. We, we, we've read the passport that he's protected while he's there. But he has misinterpreted it. It permits him to enter. It doesn't give him a license to go wherever he wants and do whatever he wants. In ferry, he's not special. In ferry, he's an outsider. And he does seem to forget that he's an outsider. And I agree, he is, he is rebuked, gently rebuked, but rebuked by the maiden that he meets who dances with him. Though, of course, after rebuking him, she then invites him to dance with them. How do we dance in fairy? For a long time. Yes, for a long time is, is definitely one way in which we dance in fairy. We don't do line dances in fairy. We don't do... We don't waltz in fairy. What do we do? Powerful and joyful. Swift, powerful, and joyful dancing. Um, does anyone recall from any medieval work? It comes up in the Wife of Bath's Tale. When you come across fairies dancing in the woods, how are they dancing? Almost always. Huh? In a ring. Yeah, always dancing in a ring. That it's, it's, the, the dancing is a communal dance. It's always a communal dance. It's not like we're all just like doing free-form you know, dancing here. Uh, it's, um, or like the very awkward kind of semi-communal, but yet with the insistence upon individual expression that modern people do, right? <laughs> Which is, I have to say, of all kinds of dancing that I know, absolutely the most awkward uh, <laughs> of any kind of dancing. Um, but anyway, uh, that's not how they dance in fairy. Um, so, so, so when he's invited to dance, it's not just, hey, you know, 
dance like we are dancing, but it's really um, an invitation. Join our ring, right? Be, be one of us as we are dancing here together. And he also receives a gift, right? What's the gift? Living flower. The flower that he puts in his hair, yeah. Good, good. The living flower that he brings home. And this is the one thing that he retains from fairy. Even the star, he's eventually going to give away. But the flower, we're told, is passed down from generation to generation. So it's interesting that in the moment when he is rebuked for his presumption and begins to recognize how presumptuous his attitude was towards fairy is also the moment when he uh, receives the most lasting gift. The only time he actually appropriates for himself in one sense, something, a fairy that is the flower. He gets to take it home and put it in the casket. Though even then, the appropriation is not complete. It's not, still not entirely his flower. Right? The casket will close, and the time of its closing is not, is not of their choosing. Um, what about the attitude towards fairy bes- besides Smith's? Yeah, Liz? Uh, well, well, well um, it's just of the children. Yes, yes. Noakes believe that fairies and, and, and sweets are the two things that are especially suited to, to, to children. And sweets you don't outgrow, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, he's very patronizing. Um, uh, Prentice certainly doesn't agree with him. Um, it's a, it's a, even when Noakes isn't saying anything pointed, right? You know, he finds the star and his reaction, which is quite a, a thoughtless reaction. He says, that's funny. And Alf says, no, it isn't. <laughs> Immediately. Uh, you know, and uh, when, he's, when Noakes is making comments during the feast about the, the star disappearing, and Prentice looked at him with dark eyes and did not smile at all. <laughs> there is nothing funny about this situation. Um, he wants to make... What was Noakes' big plan for the cake? His great cake? The signature of his, of his what would the office be called? Great cookship? Uh, master, master, master cookship? No, but, I, but it, it needs a noun form, you know, like, the, like during his chefhood or, you know. Yeah, exactly. It has to, because, you know, in this town, clearly, you talk, oh, that was during the, you know, the master cookship of Noakes when, you know, anyway. Now, see, I, I agree that etude is my favorite ending when I want to make up a noun. I mean, when in doubt, use etude because it's way cooler than N-E-S-S. Uh, but uh, but I, I don't think it works here, I have to say. But anyway, sorry. Uh, Noakes' great cake I was asking about. Yeah, Liz? Uh, if you want to make a fairy cake, because I'll Yes, he wants to make a little fairy queen. It's like you can make a little paper fairy with a little tinsel wand. Um, Alpha's displeased by this idea. He does it, though, right? But he makes it, and it does not look anything like the way... It's not made out of, out of, out of tinsel and paper. It looks like it's made out of ice, right? It's very beautiful. Aaron? I was just to say, um, Noakes' idea of fairy seems to be that 
uh, Ferry and Valand and Ceres to do something for him because he takes the star. He's going to use the star when he's talking to Prentice at the end. He says that a fairy should come out and wave his wand and make him sin again. While uh, while Smith kind of just goes and he's given gifts, but he doesn't accept anything. Yeah, good. Even the the joke that Noakes makes when the star isn't found in the cake. Right? And he's like, oh, not a nice trick to play, I, I, I don't think, right? That is, again, there's that implication of like, oh, like the fairies, they were, you know, they, they, they took it away or they did, they played some kind of prank on us. The, the kind of implication of the relationship between the fairies and them. And you're right, Noakes, Noakes is dismissive, but in his dismissiveness, we can see a kind of, of astounding presumption. Presumption not of ownership or right as, as Smith falls prey to during his explorations but a more profound kind of presumption that presumption of patronizing towards it right i i am more knowing right i i know that this is all obviously nonsense um and that you know the fairies are he is adopting the fairy theme in a sense because he doesn't believe in it right uh because he, you know, he says it's it's this will be fun for the children, and he takes it as a premise to put uh, to put little trinkets in the cake, right? And oh, the fairy queen doesn't play fair, ha ha ha! She, you might not get a piece in every cake, or she might not distribute things evenly. Um, yeah, while wow, Prentice stares at him coldly the entire time. Um. What about the old master cook, whom we will learn later was Smith's grandfather? What do we know about the previous master cook? Yeah, Elise? Um, well, it seemed like he was like, different from the other ones, and sometimes he would just like, go on long journeys, and he'd go and live where he went, and then he'd come back. And it seemed like he was kind of unconventional. Or at least he became unconventional. He became unconventional. Yes, yes, good. Um, Look at page 11. It's a passage worth reading. Top of the page. There came a time, however, when the reigning master cook, to everyone's surprise, since it had never happened before, suddenly announced that he needed a holiday. And he went away. No one knew where. And when he came back some months later, he seemed rather changed. He had been a kind man who liked to see other people enjoying themselves. But he was himself serious and said very little. Now he was merrier, and often said and did most laughable things, and at feasts he would, he would himself sing gay songs, which was not expected of master cooks. Also, he brought back with him an apprentice, and that astonished the village. We can learn, presume as, of course, the star uh, was something that was in the old master cook's, that was left in the old master cook's box. Um, it seems fairly clear that on his holiday the old master cook somehow ended up in fairy and came back. What are the effects that fairy has? Think also of the change in Smith and the character of Smith that we're given before we hear about his actual adventures in fairy, the, the, the description of him and his life and the way that having the star and going to fairy seems to have affected him and defined his life. What are some of those things that we see when fairy has an impact, uh, has this sort of positive impact on people's lives? What kind of impact does it have? Liz? Well, it almost seems to enhance some natural characteristics they already have, like the new people who can be more connected better and it's kind of like school. 
Yes, good. Certainly singing is something associated with both. Uh, the, the, the old master cook had not been, you know, much of a singer before, but now he's spontaneously singing at feasts, right? And Smith becomes famous for his singing. When does he sing? When he's working. When he's working, yes. When he's at the forge, he sings. This, I think, to be not a coincidence. What's he doing at his forge? Well, he's not, he's not creating. He's making, right? I mean, that's the, it's the perfect illustration of it. He's not, he's not creating anything. He's got the pig iron right there, and he's, he's right? Uh, he's, but he's shaping it, and he's making it, and he's making it uh, into things of beauty. Even the common things he makes, right, like, like pot lids and, and horseshoes, have a certain elegance to them and are good to hold. And as for the thing when, he, when he's actually trying to make beautiful things, they're remarkable. And, the, and he sings while he's, while he's working. Clearly, therefore, in a broader sense, artistry seems to be a side effect of interaction with fairy. Now, we don't know, we're not told to what extent the master cook's cooking was improved, if at all, by his time in fairy. But we do know that Smith's smithcraft is very remarkable and much better than his father's. Other trends that we can see and what happens to human beings that are touched by fairy? How else does the master cook change? Before he was kind, but afterwards... Rachel? He was merry. Yeah, he's, he's funny now. Merry is a great word for how he is. He's... he's No, no, no. I'll say Mary is the perfect word for how he is. Nothing else quite suits. Happier, maybe, probably. Funnier, definitely, but that can be insulting. He's Mary. He is jovial in ways that he wasn't before. He laughs a lot, and he makes other people laugh. The singing, of course, is more than just an incidental thing. Remember, this is how things start with Smith, Right? I mean, that description of how sort of the influence of fairy comes over him is really quite beautiful. The bottom of 21, on Smith's 10th birthday. He looked out of the window, and the world seemed quiet and expectant. A little breeze, cool and fragrant, stirred, in the, waking, stirred the waking trees. Then the dawn came, and far away he heard the dong song of the birds beginning, growing as it came towards him until it rushed over him, filling all the land round the house and passed on like a wave of music into the west as the sun rose above the rim of the world. It reminds me of fairy, he heard himself say, but in fairy the people sing too. Then he began to sing, high and clear, in strange words that he seemed to know by heart, and in that moment the star fell out of his mouth and he caught it on his open hand. It was bright silver now, glistening in the sunlight, but it quivered and rose a little as if it was about to fly away. Without thinking, he clapped his hand to his head, and there the star stayed in the middle of his forehead, and he wore it for many years. The way that it, the song rolls across the country and sort of fills him and comes out, it's the, but it's that moment of realization and even for him, verbalization. In fairy, the people sing too, and then he sings. In this way, consciously conforming himself to the ways of fairy. 
the ways which are clearly different from the ways of his own world. Just as the master cook comes back, clearly conformed to the ways of fairy and not to the ways of his own world quite so much anymore. He's a little weird when he comes back. The others seem to believe. All these newfangled things like vacations, bringing in an apprentice who's not from the town, all that kind of thing. And then, of course, later on, most astonishingly, just leaving. Packing up three years later with his still green apprentice. Been apprenticed barely three years. Guy doesn't look like he's even 20 yet. And off the master cook goes into nowhere, right? Deviant uh, in the Wooten Major world, uh, but conformed to, to the principles of fairy. More about Smith's star. He claps it to its forehead, to his forehead, so there's the silver star on his forehead. How does that work? Do other people see it? What, what are we told there? It's a little bit complicated. Tony, do you remember? They said that if you're looking for it, you can see it, but most people, they, it's not that they don't see it, they're just not looking for it, so they just sort of assume that it's not there. Yeah. But sometimes it glows really brightly. Um, everyone in his family can see it because they see him every day. And uh, I'm not sure if they, they said there was a specific time when it glows brightly, maybe when he was singing or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's, the, the emphasis is that it's not, it's not about the star and whether the star is visible. Exactly as you say, Tony, it's about the other people, right? Their attitude, um, whether, I say, falling into biblical expression, they have eyes to see, right? It's about their perception, not about the star. It's, it's not quite invisible, um, but it's also not obvious all the time, though on some occasions it is. Remember uh, his son's first words? Little Ned Smithson's first words that he utters? Isn't it something like, Daddy looks like a giant? Yeah. Yeah. His daughter said, when he comes back, his daughter says, Your star is shining brightly, Daddy. And then his son looks up at him and in his shadow on the wall and says, You look like a giant. Right? Um, it's about perception. His family can see it. He shares these things with his family. His family knows where he goes and knows about him. Um, but yeah, but again, it's, so it's about the relationship, the, the perception of the regular human world to the fairy world, which now Smith lives for most of the rest of his life with, in one sense, one foot in either world. He acts like, in some ways, a denizen of fairy. That is, he, he, he conforms himself in part to the nature of fairy. We can see it in his, his craftsmanship. We can see it in his song. Um, even to some extent, perhaps... In some of his values, what does he never make? <laughs> Weapons of any kind. There's no, re- no record of his ever having made a weapon. Even though he could have made immensely powerful and valuable weapons uh, based upon what he learned in fairy, he, he never makes weapons. Um, and that, I think, is important and interesting. Um, what else does he make besides the useful household items that are listed? Horseshoes, pot lids, that kind of thing. What special things does he make? Gates. Yes. It's rather an unusual uh, item in the blacksmithing list, right? He doesn't make swords. He makes gates. Which, 
are arrestingly beautiful. It's hard to walk by without stopping and staring at it. And it's impossible to go through it when it's shut. It's both very beautiful and very strong. A couple incidents in fairy that we kind of skipped over that I'd like to come back to. What do you make of the birch tree incident? I mean, there are several of his, of his experiences in fairy which are kind of imagistic, that is, focused on just this one visual image or moment, like when he sees the elven warriors returning off the ship and coming towards him and passing over him, and they are, uh, in the literal and classical meaning of the word, awesome. They strike him with awe, and he just sort of, you know, collapses into the fetal position and hopes they don't hurt him as they come by. Right? There's the moment of the king's tree, where he sees and is overwhelmed by the king's tree. But there's this other incident, which we get more detail about, more narrative concerning, a little bit more information. And it's very striking. That, remember, it starts off when he sees what looks like a lake in a valley. What does it look like? The lake. Do you remember this? Jordan, do you have it? Yeah, it's on page 30. Um under a low cliff and it seems to have this great immense depth in which there are strange shapes of flame which are like great weeds in a dingle whatever that is yeah a, a, a shallow part of the sea that you can see down to the to, to the weeds underneath yeah so he, he sees this lake and it looks really deep but he can see all the way down and there there are light it's it's pretty mysterious fiery lights and everything down there so what does he do yeah, he's Smith the Explorer, right? He goes down to try to check out this lake and to look more into the depths. So he actually tries to go out onto the lake, but what does he find? It's, he, can't, he, can't even, he can't even penetrate the water. Remember how Tolkien emphasizes in on fairy stories? You know, in the world of fairy, humans are the ones that are insubstantial and and unimportant. He can't even break the surface of the water of this lake. He can see into it, but he can't step into it. And then what happens when he tries? He slips and falls. And then? The wind, a wild wind, picks up. And both he is now, he has, it seems, transgressed and is being expelled. But he's saved from the wind which is buffeting him and blowing him around by the birch tree. It embraces him and holds him, but is itself injured. All of its leaves stripped bare by the wind, and it's weeping. And he's covered by the tears of the birch tree as it weeps for the injuries it has received from the wind as it tried to save him. And he thanks it. Blessed be the birch. What can I do to make amends or give thanks? This is the bottom of 30. He felt the answer of the tree pass up from his hand. Nothing, it said. Go away. The wind is hunting you. You do not belong here. Go away and never return. What do we do with that? Let's see. Liz, what do you think? I almost feel like it puts the scene right before he actually meets the fairy queen. And I feel like it's almost a warning saying you're wandering to 
Yes. Good. There's clearly a warning there. The wind is hunting you. Right? Um, it's not just in response to what you're doing. You, you, are, you are presuming this is the message he's going to get. We saw him. I mean, th- that was a very presumptuous thing that he just did. Ah, I see a beautiful lake. Let me touch it. Let me wade in it. Let me explore it. But it's not just that he has transgressed against fairy and now fairy itself is ejecting him. Right? The tree saves him. Self-sacrificially saves him at great cost to itself. What can I do to make amend? Nothing. We can see both generosity, the graciousness of fairy, but also the sternness of it. He is not entirely welcome. He is not, he does not have a passport to go anywhere and do anything. Jordan? Um. Maybe I'm not reading it right, but it seems to me like the bush doesn't willingly save him. It says, it swept him up and flung him on the shore, and it drove him up, up the slopes, boiling and falling like a deadly. He put his arms around the stem of a young birch and clung to it, which implies it was his act like, grab the birch and be like, you, save me. Duncan? Um, I, know, I understand what you're saying. But then it, it says that she embraced him. And that kind of gives me a sense that she does have some choice as to whether it's going to act as a person. I don't see that word anywhere in that paragraph. As he enclosed, but that doesn't take a multiple way. Bent down by the wind. It didn't like bend the whole thing. Enclosed him with branches. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, it, yeah, I agree. It is that word enclosing that does suggest to me also that the tree has some. The tree doesn't seem to be just a victim here. It has been injured. But, yeah, there does seem to be purposefulness in the enclosing him in its branches. I agree. Part of it. Well, I definitely, I definitely saw what Jordan said, but I think it's, it has to be a bit of a mix of both. Like, mm-hmm. the first tree is just pushing this. Bent down, he's like, oh, well, okay, and he kind of just hold, holds on to him. So, I mean, he at first, maybe the tree was a little reluctant, and he's like, okay, I'll hold on to him. But I think afterwards, he just kind of yeah, well, yeah, it's, I think you can see both things operating at once. And it's one of the things that I think is so, is so beautiful about that scene, is that it's, if it were just his, you know, he is abusing a tree... Uh, in order to save himself, that he is putting his own well-being above the well-being of the tree or something. It's entirely one way from his direction. Um, That would be pretty bad if the tree is merely a victim. Um, But there does seem to be an element of self-sacrifice too, but it's not just pure self-sacrifice. Oh, hey, no problem. Don't worry about me. I saved you from the wind because, you know, that's just the kind of tree I am. (laughs) It's also wounded. I mean, it's it's also, I mean, it is... Go away. You can't make amends. Um, go away and don't come back. Um, so that that simultaneous 
protectiveness and expulsion. That it, I mean, it holds him, and then it sort of pushes him away, and he leaves with its tears uh, on him. And it's, it's very evocative. But now we have to go. Uh, pay attention to, of course, the, the passing on of the star. Be continuing to think about the relationship between humans and fairy uh, as we've been looking at it in the beginning and see where this story pushes us as we get towards the end. That's all for today. The next session, containing the discussion of the rest of Smith of Wooten Major, should be up very soon, probably within only a few hours. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.